Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. The second time it's gone off. Never got home. They never got home. They never got home. Those, those, those boys. That's yeah. <laughs> they have asked for that. Really. Well, you can laugh. I have to walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. You don't know what you're talking about. What did you know? I managed to stay alive for six and a half I'd say it to your face, and I'll say it to you now. I'm down to Wanfield, and we'll see them, won't we? What you doing down here, you shawnee man? You're very welcome to today's Irish Times Second Captain's World Cup podcast. Oh, my Devin here, still excited. Kieran Murphy. Still excited, on. I trust you've all enjoyed the first week as much as we have. There have been World Cups in the past. But let's be honest, they start to feel like they're dragging a small bit by the end of week one. It can sometimes feel as if you're staying up until 1am for the end of Cameroon versus Croatia out of some ill-defined feeling of duty or obligation to football. Completism, it's called. Correct. Yeah, you know, uh, uh, basically a desire to own all of the albums <laughs> of a certain band, even the ones you know to be truly awful. <laughs> this time around, it's very different, Murph. It's just, it's just all fun, amazing, crazy stuff is happening in almost every game. It is. I mean, uh, I missed the first 20 minutes of Australia-Netherlands yesterday, and I took that as a sign from football to say, what the, what the hell are you playing out here, Murph? Big gay. Get your head in the game. You know, yeah. what the hell is going on here? a plucky Australian team here and free-scoring forwards for Holland. What but are you doing? I'm sorry, this? football. I just thought Netherlands would win easy. <laughs> Australia were terrible. I'm sorry, I'll game. never do it again. Sorry. The crazy stuff last night involved Spain getting knocked out and a bunch of journalists in the Maracanã having the bejesus scared out of them when a gang yep. of Chilean fans stormed through their media centre to get access to the stadium. Yeah, and there was teammates headbutting each other. Oh, for Cameroon. Ah, well, there was all sorts of madness, really. Yeah. Yesterday, you know, yesterday was... A pretty good day. I mean, we there was a concern on Tuesday that everyone was saying, well, this is unbelievable. And then we had a couple of nil-all draws. Like, well, we jinxed it. But yesterday was a solid return to form. What with the headbuttings and the goals. Jonathan Wilson was one of the journalists in the American Am, which had to him today. Richie Sadler is going to be in studio shortly to look ahead to the huge game this afternoon. Well, tonight, uh, 8 o'clock, kick-off Irish time. Knockout football now for England and Uruguay. We've already put our first show of the day out, by the way, so do have a listen to that if you haven't heard it already after you finished up here, in which I accept full responsibility for recklessly tipping up Spain to win the whole thing. And I somewhat make, make the somewhat tenuous claim that Iniesta didn't underperform as badly as some of the other players, but that's about all I had to cling on to. Mm. Anyway, today is going to be fun, so let's get started. Yeah, you can laugh. That was the World Cup. Ken is in Fortaleza. Ken, we're one week in. How has the World Cup been for you? 
Oh, oh, it's been amazing. It's been amazing. What can, what more can I say? Uh, I don't know. You've caught me off balance with that question. It's too big. It's too big a question. <laughs> it would take me all day to answer it. Uh, what, what I'd ask you is slightly more focused question then, and ask mm-hmm. you: uh, Is this the end of Tiki Tack again? No, uh, but maybe. I mean, it's no, I don't, I don't, I, but I mean, who, who's ever got Tiki Taka to work apart from Barcelona? You know, when you actually think about it, it doesn't really seem well, Spain, as though anyone Spain else has. has. Uh, Spain have a lot of the same players, though, and maybe now that those players are, are coming to the end, um, it doesn't work for Spain anymore either. Um, you know, I think maybe it was a, it was a particular, but I, I don't know if we can talk about it being a, I don't think it's something that was ever successfully adapted by other sides. I don't think it was something any other side managed to do um, with the same effectiveness as Barcelona and Spain, who, remember, were largely the same team, uh, managed to do it. And I think Barcelona managed to do it a lot better than Spain because the added feature that Barcelona had that Spain lacked was Lionel Messi. Uh, I mean, Barcelona were playing at a much higher level uh, than Spain against much better teams. So Spain were able to get away with it, winning you know, 1-0, 1-0, 1-0, 1-0. Uh, one nil, um, whereas Barcelona would would have won those games by four or five goals because the Messi had gave them that extra penetration, which maybe has been a, a problem. Um, you know, when Messi hasn't played well for them, uh, and has has been a problem for Spain. You know, even when even in their great years, their problem was scoring sufficient goals. The, the great thing that they always had was such dominance of the match that the opponent had the ball for so uh, such a small proportion of the time that they could barely they barely had the chance to mount any attacks. So Spain would never let in any goals. I mean, it was an incredible thing uh, which they managed to do. But I think we maybe have to give the credit for that to the players who were doing it. Well, this sounds worrying because apparently... The ideas. Yeah. The, those ideas seem to be being bestowed upon the next generation of young players. That's certainly what... A lot of people are saying that their successful underage teams all play in this same style. And are you saying now maybe that that needs to be looked at? No, because, you know, they might have the players who can make it work. I mean, they might have a centre forward who can score goals, um, which I think no matter what style your team wants to play is always a, is always a useful thing to have in your team. You know, they might have midfielders who aren't um, a couple of years past their best, huffing and puffing around in the middle, um, not controlling the ball as well as they used to, not being able to win the ball from their opponents the way that they used to. Um, you know, so they might have a goalkeeper who can who can stop a ball occasionally. Uh, and Spain, it turned out, had none of those things. So, you know, I don't think we can really say that the that the style itself has been proven not to work. I mean, the style has been proven to work once you've got the right players playing really well. But then, of course, you could say that about a lot of different styles of football. Um, and the common factor when you get down to it is if you have a lot of really good players in your team who are playing really well, you've got a good chance of winning the game. Yeah. I've got a theory, Ken. Mm-hmm. And that is that Diego Costa is going to flop spectacularly <laughs> uh, in the Premier League. <laughs> Can I tell you why? Yeah. No, you know, I think, I think he'll probably be okay, Diego Costa, but it has been a difficult uh, last couple of months for him. Um, I, I would uh, say that it started getting difficult for him right around the time when his hamstring started to uh, wear out. Yeah. And that's, you know, I don't, I don't really think that he's coming to this tournament uh, properly fit. Certainly, 
he's been out of form. But I would tend to put that down to the the injuries that he had towards the end of the season after a really hard uh, season, you know, in which they reached the Champions League final in addition to winning the the league. And Diego Costa played uh, nearly all those games for Atletico uh, in a style that I think takes a bit of a physical toll. Uh, and really, the World Cup, I suppose, came at the wrong time for him. Um, as for as for his decision to play for Spain, though, I don't think it's looking too clever now, because if he played for Brazil, if he'd gone with Brazil, he'd probably now be in position to come into their team for Fred, get a hat trick against Cameroon, who are the, one of the worst teams I've ever seen in the World Cup, and seal his place in the team for the knockout phase. Instead of which, he's just been knocked out with Spain after not having a single shot on target, and may never play for Spain again. I mean, Spain are, are presumably going to have a new manager uh, quite soon. A whole, They're going to turn over a whole new leaf. A lot of these players are going to be gone. Is Diego Costa going to be part of the plans of the next coach? A Brazilian who plays for Chelsea? Uh, he's not exactly uh, right up there in the, you know, uh, grabbing the attention of, of Spanish football uh, as a Brazilian who plays for Chelsea. So... Uh, you know, I think he may, there may not be too many more international caps of any kind in Diego Costa's future. The way you painted it was that he basically uh, uh, broke up with a girl and just shacked up with the next girl who'd look sideways at him. And that's basically that was the amount of thought that he put up, that he put into his decision to, to uh, become a Spanish international footballer. Well, I think it was definitely a personal thing um, with Scolari. Uh, who he felt hadn't given him enough respect, uh, or certainly not as much respect as he felt he was getting from Vicente del Bosque. I think that was the reason why ultimately he decided to reject Brazil and, and join Spain. I think that if Scolari had made more of an effort, um, then he probably would be playing for Brazil right now. But maybe he should have taken a longer view than just this tournament. I mean, the fact is, to the Spanish fans, he's still a Brazilian. You know, he, the fact that he can play for them, great. But I think his form has to be better, has to be much better than an equivalent Spanish player in order for Spanish fans and maybe the Spanish coach, whoever he is. Obviously, Vicente del Bosque liked him, but Vicente del Bosque was never probably going to be around after this World Cup anyway. Because, you know, how many World Cups, you know, either he loses and he's going to leave or he wins it and he's already going to stay on. How many World Cups do you want to win? You know what I mean? So I think... Uh, uh, maybe he should take. Maybe he should look beyond this tournament at what was going to happen next. Brazil maybe have a manager who likes him more than Scolari does. Uh, uh, Spain maybe have a manager who doesn't have as much time for him as Del Bosque does. And also there's the fact that if he'd gone to the World Cup with Brazil, look at the form that Fred is in. Diego Costa. People would be saying, "Why is Diego Costa not on the team?" Truth is, Diego Costa is in pretty bad form himself. But nobody would have known that. He would have had a little bit of extra time to uh, recover, and then a nice, easy run out against the Cameroon team, who who, who might lose six or seven nil to Brazil. Uh, you know, they're already eliminated from the tournament. They were absolutely abysmal uh, last night against Croatia. Um, you know, it would have been a good game, good game to come into, but unfortunately, it's not going to happen. Uh, Del Bosque has been probably criticised, I think, over the last couple of games for being too loyal to his system and too loyal to certain players. But he drafted Costa in there. We had Torres coming off the bench again, looking like a pale shadow of whatever oh. Torres used to be. David Villa, wasn't that Villa on the bench? He was in the squad, sitting mm-hmm. there, watching yeah. the game. Xabi uh, was dropped when it came to the crunch. Now, he stayed true to um, to Iker Casillas, which is maybe a sentimental call there more than anything else but it didn't strike me that Del Bosque has been slavishly loyal not in the way that that Phil Scolari has for example 
He's been loyal to the Madrid players, hasn't he? Mm. I mean, I don't know. I have no idea why Casillas played. I mean, Pepe Reina must hate himself today. He now knows that he's literally been brought along as a cheerleader for the last four tournaments. That was always his job. Like George W. Bush at Yale. <laughs> uh, his, his, job, his job was to... Uh, was to slap everyone on the back as they came off the field, going, well done, and then to... to uh, MC the, the homecoming. MC. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but they never actually considered him to be a goalkeeper. He was just a good man to have around the squad, like Mick Byrne or something like that. Um, <laughs> but, they, but, but you wouldn't put him in goal, you know, any more than you would have put Mick Byrne in goal. Um, so Casillas instead turns up at the World Cup with these haunted eyes of fear, like he's fiver and watership down. He's had some awful premonition about something that's going to happen, and he can't concentrate on the ball. I mean, the attempt, the attempt that he had to, to save the free kick from Sanchez was ridiculous. I mean, Casillas, he punched it straight to a Chilean player, got up and then dodged back into the center of his goal, creating the space for the, for the ball to fly past him. You know, but it wasn't as though Del Bosque hadn't had warning. I mean, he was absolutely horrendous against uh, against Holland. I thought that, you know, arguably the worst player in Spain's team on, on a day when most of them played really badly. So there's no way that, that he should have played. Um, you know, having said that, who really, as a coach, I mean, I, I would make an exception to Casillas. Casillas definitely should have been dropped. So to me, it's a mistake uh, by Del Bosque. But, you know, if you, if you talk about being too loyal and maybe he should have freshened up the squad and all this kind of thing, which coach can drop these players? Who could do that? I mean, it's really, uh, you know, Del Bosque, I think, has too much respect for footballers. And this is one of the things that the, the footballers are, he's a manager who the, the players who've played for him like because he, they feel that he gets them, he, he gets what they're about. And he knows that these guys have won three tournaments. They've established themselves as the best players in the world of their generation. They've done more for Spain than any previous generation of Spurs. Who is he really to drop them? Who is he to turn around before this tournament and say, Xavi, you're done. Casillas, you're finished. I need to bring in new guys. Uh, thanks a lot for everything. Uh, and, but that's your, that's your lot. You're, you're done. He, you can't do that. I don't think that, I, I think that when players win so much and, and establish and have so much status and win so much respect, the only way that they can ever be taken out of the team is if they're crushed on the field one day. They have to, it has to happen to them on the field. You, you know, it would be wrong, I think, of Del Bosque, for instance, before the Holland game, to have turned to Xavi and said, you know what, Xavi, I don't think you can, I don't, I don't think you can operate at this level anymore. I'm not going to play you. What he has to do is he has to believe that Xavi has got one last effort in him. That this great player who's done, you know, who's been the, probably the best player in the history of Spanish football, that he has got one last tournament, one last effort, even though we haven't seen it for Barcelona, that once he goes out there in the World Cup, he's going to bring it one last time. And he had to give him that chance. And it turned out, no, he didn't. And Holland won 5-1. But it, I think it was the only way that it could have happened. It had to be the players themselves who failed. It had to be on the field that they were exposed as being past their best. If Del Bosque had made that decision without it being proven on the field, that would have been a worse decision than the, than the one he made. You know the real reason Chile won last night, though, don't you? They scored two goals and Spain scored none. Uh, well, that's part of the reason, but the reason that they had the emotional energy to score two goals. You saw the anthem, right? You saw them belting out that anthem? 
You saw the acapella part at the end. You saw everything that Brazil did that you ridiculed them for yesterday. Well, that was what that's what got Chile firing out of the blocks, thinking about their country, crying, getting out there, scoring goals. It was uh, one of the most beautiful things I've ever oh, seen. It was incredible. I mean, for me, it was what sport is all about. Yeah, I, mean, I, I just said the other day, playing against a team that currently in the World Cup has an identical record, as someone pointed out to me yesterday, an identical record with Ireland after two games of Euro 2012. I mean, Spain are a really bad team. We were all saying this before the tournament. So I don't think it matters how you sing the anthem, whether you belt it out lustily or, or stand there um, uh, you know, kind of looking around at the crowd and not even taking any notice of it. If you're up against Spain, you're probably going to be okay. <laughs> All right, Richie Sadler has popped into studio. Richie, how are you? How are you, lads? How are you getting on? We're good, we're good. We're enjoying the World Cup as much as you are, I'm sure. Absolutely bloody loving it. The, uh, I think it was this day last week, wasn't it, that we had you in on the eve, not even the eve, it was the day of the opening game. We're only a week, <laughs> that was only a week ago and the world champions are gone. Um, are you sorry to see Spain go? I am. Um I am sorry to see them go. I love watching them at their best. They're unrecognisable now from what they used to be. But I, I love that style of football. I love the quality of it. I love how hard it is to do and, and, and to see players do it so well and so comfortably for so long. I love that. But they have been shadow of what they used to be. Is it that the and a lot of people are saying Tiki Tack is dead, all, all that, that entire angle, is that the case? Or is it just that these players weren't that the style is actually fine but these players just weren't able to execute it anymore I'd agree I don't think a style all of a sudden can look so 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 short and and, and so bad it's just the way they played like they're, they're how often do we see Spain players give the ball away so consistently and so cheaply and, and, and not to control the ball and not to control the pace and tempo of an entire game from start to finish like they were so bad like they were individual performances but there was no all that, that, that the cohesion and the they just to be joined up thinking everywhere in the Spain performance before. Everything just seemed to fit together. They could move the ball at ease from one side of the pitch to the other, whatever tempo and pace they wanted. Completely control the game. Like none of those things, none of them, for even brief spells, were on show in any of the two games. It's astonishing. A complete collapse. And the psychological collapse as well. I mean, like Spain bullied teams in the past. They didn't do it in the, in the, in the conventional way we think of bullying. Like they weren't going around physically kind of beating people up but they, they just were ruthless and just relentlessly attacked people and just toyed with them um, and beat all everyone in their path for years and they had no response to anything that were they were put up against in the last two games they just collapsed they completely collapsed without response it was amazing to watch why why was working on the first game yeah and even at half time like go back to how well, I don't know where you were watching it go back to how you felt at half time it was one all Silva nearly put them 2-0 up before Van Persie scored. None of us at halftime said, look, unless Spain do something differently, they're in for a hide. None of us said that. We're all we're sitting there going, but for the next 45 minutes, we were shell-shocked watching it. Yeah. It was amazing. It was a joy to work on. I mean, uh, what do you think is responsible, Richard? Because, I mean, they had, I think it was 16 players out of the 23 were, uh, were part of the squad that won the last World Cup. So these are guys who know what it's all about. Um, yeah, I mean, people talk about sort of physical tiredness and, and the cumulative tiredness of, of having played for so many years, you know, and they've played tournaments, you know, that they played the Confederations Cup last year, they played the Euros the year before. Is that really enough of an excuse for what we've just seen there? It seems to me as though 
that in itself doesn't really uh, doesn't really do enough to explain it. The, 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 there probably isn't only one thing here. I think we could talk all day and probably won't identify the one thing. But um, well, I remember when you know you hear when a team win, wins a tournament, or, or particularly at, like the Euros or the World Cup, the, the question straight away is, you know, will, will they have the desire, or the hunger to go and win it again? Like obviously the same ability, same same tactics, all the same things are in place. But the, the, the psychological, those little two or five percent that make the difference between winning a semi final one nil or losing it one nil, and and Spain never lacked that. They, they they never lacked. Um, they looked as competitive and and as motivated as ever. Th- this time, I think I'd be amazed. Like I watched the first game, and you're thinking, is something going on here in the squad that has yet to emerge? Is there a story here that hasn't broken yet? Mm. Because they were they were just in pieces as a team. Um, did no did, did, did no reaction, no no response to to going two one down, three one down, four one down to Holland, and then even last night against Chile as well. It, there just seemed to be an acceptance, or, or a complete lack of ideas, or a lack of a lack of any kind of a fight back, and it was it was astonishing to watch. I don't know if there is one factor you can put it on. Um, I don't think I don't buy the tiredness argument. Yeah. I, 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 well, I, I don't think. I think psychologically, right, being being winners and being the team to beat and being the most talked about team. Um, I think that maybe has a, a, a wearying effect, but not to the point where you can justify those two performances. You well, it could have been worse for Spain, Richie, and I'll tell you how. Could it? They could have been Cameroon. <laughs> at least uh, they didn't. At least they didn't start headbutting each other. Well, I, I worked on that game last night, and it was a ju- cause it was a little bit one a.m. when we were doing our post-match chat, and there's nothing to liven up a post-match chat. Like, <laughs> I enjoyed the chat. It yeah. was a joy. It was like this is this is a godsend. We've just seen a, a Cameroon player just stick their head on his teammate. It was. It was amazing watching it because, I mean, they capitulated. We, we, we thought beforehand that they were a, a, you know, it was a squad in disarray. They were awful in their first game. Um, and then when they went down to 10, even the way they went down to 10 men last night, what Alex Song did was bar me. An elbow to the back. Kind of like a just chopped a down elbow. Botched wrestling move kind of thing. It was just, and to do it in the middle of the pitch. 20 yards from the ref with no one between you and the ref and it was just it made no sense and then for Asu Okato to do what he did I mean I assume there was killings in that dressing room afterwards I assume it was it was it was uproar in there you could see uh, Samuel Eto trying to calm him down as he and apparently Eto isn't the most popular player mm. in the world either so I don't know how that necessarily would have gone down but it was crazy stuff have, have you seen you play professional football. Have you seen that? Before, kind of thing before? my professional football days, in my St. Benilda's days, really playing for the senior team. <laughs> so we're all in sixth year. I probably shouldn't name the two lads, but two of the lads from our team, one centre half, one was centre forward, right. headbutted each other. It's exact, like exact same each thing. Other. Exact same <laughs> thing. Take turns. They, no, they came. They came. It was a coming together. If you yeah. use that like phrase, Rocky Balboa, Apollo Creed, that kind joined of thing. Simultaneous headbutt. Yeah, there, 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 there was, there was, there was contact there, and they both went for it. On the same pitch, the ref didn't send But them not on. in professional football, you haven't seen it. It's not, it's not seen in any circumstances as acceptable. You know, this idea that they're showing passion. Oh, I, go away. <laughs> yeah, that's, I, always, I love hearing that. When I was half-hearted does, about that, actually. Yeah, when someone does the most ridiculous thing, someone somewhere <laughs> will go, well, let's look at the positives. At least he cares. <laughs> <laughs> and there is better ways of showing you care. We do want to talk to you about England. This is the big game today. And I'm going to put it to you that Roy Hodgson has instigated an incredible... PR campaign here. It seems as though everything he does, to, to, everything he touches turns to gold. 
The players are having the time of their lives over there. Everyone's enjoying themselves. Sure, they're getting beaten and they could go out of the tournament tonight, but hey, they're going to go down with some young players on the team. It is amazing, isn't it? it I mean, it's so positive. Um, and I think he deserves a lot of credit for that because it is, it is as a direct response to him, like consistently, like kind of lowering expectations and playing down the, the team and their abilities and, and kind of nipping in the bud any of the, the, the hype that surrounded some of the pre, pre-tournament performances from Barkley or whoever. Um, I didn't think they were too bad against Italy. Like, I, I don't think we should be sitting here saying, no, mocking them for being positive and saying they should be relentlessly negative. There were, there were good points to the performance, but it is an amazing thing, particularly with England. So you're impressed by it? I'm being a bit the, cynical, maybe. Impressed by... The fact that Hodgson has managed to get the press on side, really. Well, I actually thought it would work the opposite way. I thought before the Italy game, everyone kept saying there is very little expected of this team so they can go out and just play. And then people were kind of in a roundabout way starting to expect a bit more because the idea being that they're under less pressure. So I thought inadvertently the the lack of expectation was kind of creating a bit of expectation. In a weird way, I've explained that well. <laughs> no, that, that happened in the year 2012 to a certain extent as well. Oh, we don't expect it. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Because, because so little is expected, because they're not under pressure, and because relatively speaking, they're not as good as the other teams, they're actually going to have a belter of a tournament. Yeah, that, that kind of was starting to creep into this, um, this build-up. But I can't, like we were talking about the Uruguay game in this evening, I can't call that at all. I mean, it's, they're so evenly matched, and obviously in different areas they have strengths, but... Very difficult to call that one. Okay. I, the, 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 the Rooney selection, it looks like he's going to play. Um, I think that was the big talking point after the first game. It looks like he's going to play in the middle as well, Ken. Yeah, I mean, that, that was... that was. I don't really trust too much of what I'm reading about Rooney, to be honest, having seen what happened uh, after the, uh, the last match, where his post-match comments were completely twisted to make it sound as though he'd said something that he didn't really say. What was that in your mind? Yeah. Um, Rooney in the mix zone came out to speak to the media um, answered a few questions about the game and then um, then was asked a question about whether he thought his place was still guaranteed given the riches at Roy's disposal and he interrupted the question and said um, I've never said my place you know why'd you say that I've never said my place is guaranteed um, you know, uh, and and sort of stared back at the guy, and the guy's like, Ugh. and really says, you know, I've, I work hard to get in this team. You know, I've never said that. You know, essentially, I've never, I, I don't take my place for granted. I work hard to get in this team. I work hard to get in this team. Uh, and another guy said at that point, uh, I think he meant, uh, do you think you'll, you know, are you confident you play against Uruguay? And Rooney turned around and goes, I don't expect to play. I want to play. I work hard to play. And all this kind of thing. So, so what Rooney was saying was, don't try and stitch me up with a question that implies I take my place in the team for granted. What the headlines said, and they all said the same thing, so obviously there was a little conference that went on after this where they all agreed on the story, was that Rooney worried about place for Uruguay game. Young challenger Raheem Sterling breathing down Rooney's neck. He's not sure if he's going to play now. But Rooney hadn't said that. You see what I mean? It wasn't the case. Rooney was saying, don't try and make out like I'm this kind of arrogant superstar who takes my place in the team for granted. And the papers said, uh, Rooney, okay, so Rooney's saying, I don't expect to play as in, I don't take my place for granted. But the paper said, I don't expect to play. Use that quote as in, I don't think I'll play. I think I'll be dropped. A completely different thing. How does that tie into this game, though, then? 
Sorry? How does that tie into this game? You, you, you just refuse to... You're, you're, you're wary of anything that's said about Rooney. You feel that maybe he won't end up in the middle tonight. I'm just a little... I don't, I don't know. I mean, Roy Hodgson... Maybe, maybe Roy Hodgson will drop him. You never know. I mean, he might. You know, he's seen the kind of uh, praise that was, that's been lavished on him for selecting uh, Raheem Sterling and, and going with a kind of attacking lineup. You know, he must know that there's, there's plenty of people out there who don't want Rooney in the team. If he was to drop Rooney, this hurts me more than it hurts you, Wayne. <laughs> and then, then maybe, uh, maybe he'd get even more praise. Why is it Roy, that- Hodg- Roy Hodgson's bold selection. Um, he left yesterday's man, Wayne Rooney, on the bench. England lost uh, 3-0 to Uruguay, uh, but it's the dawn of a new era for uh, Roy's troops. Why is there such an obsession with precisely where on the pitch Rooney plays? This is the one thing that interests me, Richie. And I ask that because I would have thought that if you've got this formation where there are essentially three supporting attacking players behind a striker the pitch isn't that wide it can't be that difficult for them to alternate as the game goes If maybe the English players aren't as tactically aware as uh, I think that's probably uh, clear enough as some other nations but it can't be that hard for Rooney to play some of the time in the middle maybe be out in the right maybe be out in the left and be able to contribute in certain ways and the same with the, with the other two boys no? Yeah I suppose it's down to the licence that the manager gives you and, and the trust that he has in you to interpret the game as it as it flows, rather than being this regimented, yeah. you're on the left side of these three players. Mm. You're on the right side. You're in the middle. You can't move anywhere else. Yeah, I suppose that will depend on the manager and the manager's belief in the player to be able to just read a game and to adjust. But because of because so much like Rooney's performance the other night, so much of the the, the post match discussion was on how suitable he was to do that particular job that he was given. So then the conversation really honed in on well, what what job should Wayne Rooney be given? Um, and a lot of the talk the other night was, was you know that's him out of position because he he, the, he had weaknesses and particularly in the defensive aspect of that role or Italy maybe took advantage of of, of the slight weakness he had in that role. But I I think you have to play him centrally if you're going to play him. Not you have to, but I think to get the most out of him you put him centrally. But I I I I'd find it hard to put him centrally ahead of Sterling, who was excellent the other night, or Sturridge up front, who was excellent the other night. I just think there are other players who'll do those central positions better than Rooney would do it. And I, don't, I wouldn't yeah. include Rooney in a, in a conversation about putting him in the two wide positions either. Well, I mean, the thing about it is that, I mean, you can make the point to Rooney, look, other, there's other great players who play in, in wide positions that are able to be effective, like, say, Cristiano Ronaldo from Portugal. You know, he plays on the left side of a, of a three-man attack. So what's your problem? But if you watch Cristiano Ronaldo play for Portugal, whenever Portugal loses the ball, Ronaldo just turns around and starts walking back very slowly. Mm-hmm. The only thing that he has to do in, in, order, in, in a defensive sense is get himself back on side uh, for the next move, whenever, whenever Portugal gets the ball. So he's just watching the game from, from an advanced position. He doesn't have to expend any energy whatsoever in chasing the ball. Whereas when England loses the ball, Rooney has to run and get back behind the ball. You know, it's a, it's a completely different thing that he's being asked to do, and it involves uh, a hell of a lot more running. Um, you know, as a central player, he maybe doesn't have to do that much. He can concentrate more on what he's good at, which is, you know, in his case, shooting a goal, passing to the players around him, you know, making quick decisions, using all the experience that he has. That's the kind of uh, thing that, that that's they're his strengths as well, rather than his distance running ability, which frankly was never his his forte. And at the age of twenty eight in these hot stadiums, although it shouldn't be it shouldn't be too hot in Sao Paulo, um, 
is is no longer really his uh, is no longer really his thing. You're not overly convinced he'll definitely be starting. Oh, I'm not sure, but I mean it's, the point say that you're making, you, you wouldn't use them ahead of Sterling and Sturridge because you know the other players in central positions do it better. Why not play them all in the center? I mean, the, you could play a diamond midfield and use them all in the center. This is the this is a tactical uh, problem that Brendan Rodgers has been finding different answers to all season. Uh, all, all of the season just gone. So sometimes he, he, you know, I've got two good strikers. How do I get them both in the team? I don't want to play either in out of position. What do I do? Now, I think Suarez is, is a more versatile player. He, can, he, he actually can be effective when you use him on the right or left of a three-man attack, even if you do ask him to do a bit of defending. But uh, the solutions that he came up with included a three-man defense. So he played sort of three... Uh, three four one two or five three two or whatever in order to get the the two guys uh, Sterling and Sturridge uh, Sterling uh, rather Suarez and Sturridge up front and then when Sterling came into the team really strongly in the second half of the season he started using them in a in a diamond so he'd have uh, it was basically four three one two was Liverpool's formation Sterling in front of the three men in midfield and then two strikers up front now I don't see why you couldn't do that with Sturridge uh, and Rooney and Sterling as your three front players. Uh, and they would all be in the central positions. They would all uh, be where they like to be on the pitch. But I suppose that would take a little bit of figuring out at this stage for Roy Hodgson. And uh, maybe it's figuring out that he, he doesn't want to do. Maybe, maybe it's something they didn't work on in, in preparation and don't feel they can switch to now in the tournament. Um, but it is, you know, there, there is a way of doing it. It's just England aren't doing it. England's stroke of luck here is that they're playing against a Uruguay team who look incredibly limited without Luis Suarez playing. Now we're all assuming Suarez is going to start tonight. That's certainly the indication from the management. Richie, in your experience of trying to, well, I don't think you've had that specific injury, so maybe it's too I general. probably have at some point. <laughs> Whatever his injury is, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's a good bet I've had it. It's meniscus, it's a, it's a knee problem, but um, what we know, it, it, forget about, say the injury is 100% cleared up and he's totally injury-free, and forgetting that he's, he'll have no pain or anything like that. Just the idea that he hasn't played any football, how, how much of an edge will that take off Suarez and the way he plays the game? It, it, will, it will definitely take away something, because if... If it didn't, well, then it just brings a mockery, the whole idea that you have to prepare a squad in a certain way. If you're going to turn around and say, well, a fellow not playing for weeks is going to have no impact on his performance, that wouldn't make sense. There's a couple of things. That you're right. There's a difference between being match fit and being pain-free or injury-free or, or recovered sufficiently from an injury. Um, to expect him to be at his best or as sharp as he can be... Um, would be ludicrous, really. It would be an astonishing, astonishing feat for him to go from being on a, a, although minor surgery to be on a surgeon's table a few weeks ago. Was it three, three and a half weeks? What is yeah, it? I think it's, it's. I think we're at about four weeks. Are we week now? four. Like that's astonishing. Like, to get back to 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 being pain free is one thing, but then to be put into a game of this magnitude and to start. Um, but you'd still do it if you're the Uruguay manager. <laughs> I suppose because you, you probably you, have to. Yeah, I mean, there are decisions like it was. Cost to play there the other night in the, in the Champions League. The, the big Shefflin played in the All Ireland final a few years ago. Yeah, two and a half weeks or whatever it was. Yeah. Three weeks after well, that was a complete disaster. But there, it. it's because of the people involved. It because of the because those players are so good. And if that if the decision goes well, they can make such a difference to the game. It's worth taking a punt. All right, Richie. Say this game is hard to predict, but I'm going to ask you who's going to win. Draw. <laughs> That's how hard to predict it is. Richie, brilliant stuff. Cheers, Enjoy the chat to you. You can see the level of expectancy. 
This is the game you wanted a victory, boy. It didn't happen. What happened? Oh, that made such an idiot. A game that they've been looking forward to for a long time. Where do you where do you think you got it all wrong today? And then Pepe just ruins it for everyone. Thanks a lot, Pepe. You can see the level of expectancy. <laughs> He was fucking dreading. Sorry, yeah. we're not we're out of here. Oh, we're not, are we? We are. Oh. Well, I apologize for that, but obviously, I'm sorry. That was an inexactitude with me. All right. It's interesting, Ken, that you, we're speculating on Rooney here. All the indications via the training sessions and what the journalists are saying is that he will start and I'm sure he will and probably will start centrally but Roy Hodgson was he could have been consistent on this maybe this is what he always does I don't know but I I was quite struck when he did an interview on BBC last night so this would have been conducted uh, on Tuesday morning Tuesday afternoon I guess after training sorry Wednesday yeah the, the Wednesday the day before their kickoff and he said look Wayne Rooney doesn't know if he's playing none of the players know if they're playing I'll tell them that closer to the time I don't like to tell them these things this is Different managers have different ideas on that. I mean, I would have thought that, particularly for a guy like Rooney, let's be honest, isn't mentally the strongest player in the world. And actually, despite all his achievements in club football, really probably needs to be told how great he is by his manager. Is it not maybe a better course of action for Hodgson to tell him immediately after the game against Italy, Rooney, you're back in and you're going to be playing centrally against Uruguay? Well, I'm not sure about that. I think Rooney... I think really would be very surprised not to not to be in the team against Uruguay. Um, I don't think he really doubts that he's going to be in the team. Uh, you know that's why I was I was talking about that that story that oh really anxious about playing. I don't think he really is. What about the rest of the players? The uh, the fact that no, I'm not having a go at Hodgson here. A lot of managers do this. Where then other managers like Trapattoni both privately and publicly name their team in the case of the Euros name their entire their team for the entire tournament a few days before the start of the, the match a few days before the start of the previous qualifying campaign yeah. <laughs> so um, Fer- Ferguson used to used to tell them weeks in advance whether they'd be playing in a particular game I mean this was something Rio Ferdinand complained about last season uh, saying that it drove him mad that uh, David Moyes didn't tell him un- until uh, an hour before the game whether they were playing or not um, you know, so so managers have different approaches, but you know, I don't think it's it's a bad idea necessarily not to name your team. I mean, Guardiola, I don't think ever names his team, uh, ever tells them who's playing until just before uh, the match. So you know, it's just different different approaches. I mean, as as to whether Rooney needs special treatment, I don't. You know, I don't think so. I think Rooney might resent that a little bit. Roy Hodgson comes over and puts his arm around Wayne Rooney's shoulder and says, "It's okay, Wayne. You know, it's going to be okay." I know you're going through a bad time at the moment, but Roy's got your back. Yeah, well, that's you know, what I think managers really might, really, I, think, I think really might just find that a bit patronizing. You know, get your hands off me, Roy. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I mean, you know, you're just some play, <laughs> placeholder, you know, in this job because we can get anyone better. I'm like the best player this country has produced in the last uh, 20 years. So uh, I don't actually need your words of consolation and encouragement. Uh, I mean, maybe that maybe that isn't how Rooney would react. Maybe he'd be grateful to Roy Hodgson. Oh, thanks, Roy. I was consumed with self doubt, but you've really assuaged all my anxiety. Maybe that you know, it's difficult to know. That's what makes man management difficult. Yeah. But if Roy Hodgson was to leave Wayne Rooney alone and and to think something like, well, you know, Wayne Rooney is a big boy. He's one of the senior players in the squad. 
He's been through quite a lot of um, experiences in his career. He probably doesn't need me coming over and trying to micromanage his emotions. Maybe I'll just not get involved with that and trust in Rooney's uh, professionalism and experience that he's going to get himself get himself right. I think maybe that would be that would be probably what I would do in Roy Hodgson's uh, position. Jonathan Wilson was at the Marrakan to witness Chitty's victory last night and the fans' invasion of the press area, Jonathan. First and most important question is, are you okay? <laughs> I, to be honest, I mean, I, I wasn't very far from what happened, but um, I, I didn't really realise what was going on. I mean, uh, I've, I've seen the video since, which is the only reason I, I know exactly what, what, what did happen, was that suddenly the, the, the doors of the media centre uh, were, were burst open and around about 100 fans sort of charged through. But um, all, all I saw was lots of people in red shirts running hither and thither. Uh, and Chilean journalists, a lot of them wear the, the national shirts. I just thought that these were Chilean photographers or cameramen. And I assumed, I actually thought Diego Maradona had turned up because there'd been a story about half an hour earlier saying he'd been denied entry to the Maracanã. So my, my instinctive reaction was, oh, he's got in. And they were all rushing about trying to kind of get their cameras for, for a photograph. Then a wall collapsed, and I realised it was, it was something a bit more serious than that. Yeah, well, I'm glad. I'm glad everyone was okay. There have been plenty of jokes about journalists cowering under tables and all this kind of thing. But I've got to be honest, the footage is very dramatic. If you're sitting there doing your work and you seem to be just a little bit away from where the wall was actually, the temporary wall was knocked down, I think I might have cowered under a desk myself. Well, I, actually, I didn't see anybody carrying all that. I think, I think, oh, no, I don't um, think they did. I think there's more the inference that, you know, you, no, no, you, you could picture I mean, a scene of journalists being a little bit afraid. I, I think the reaction was was basically kind of get your phone and, and, and get footage of this. So I actually saw two or three little fights break out among journalists trying to get the best position to, to, get, the, to get footage of it. I, mean, I, I was right on the other side. I was, I was quite near the door, so I was quite near them when they came in, but they went across to the other side, and it was the other side where the wall collapsed. And there's sort of two partition walls... Uh, that linked the media centre to the concourse, and they they came they they sort of got through them, and they they'd been funneled down a corridor on the other side, and then just you know too many people there, so the wall collapsed into the press room and knocked over sort of the row of lockers, and uh, and three televisions, and uh, Fernando Duarte I think he's, he's been on your show his his laptop was in one of those lockers, so I was sitting quite near him during the game, and he couldn't do any work for half time because he couldn't get his laptop out of the locker because it had been knocked over. But the, the strange thing is, if, if, the, if the Chileans, having, having got through the first ring of security, if instead of going into the media center, if they'd turned left instead of right, they would have had two volunteers, who I suspect wouldn't have put up much resistance, between them and a pair of lifts and some escalators. And if they'd got there, they would, would have went to the stadium and nobody would have stopped them. So, you know, they, they just took a wrong turn. Yeah, that's a wrong turn they might regret for the rest of their lives because it was an incredible performance for the Chilean fans who were there, Jonathan. And just on, uh, I suppose maybe we are focusing too much on Spain here, uh, but we will talk about Chile again because they're very much alive in the tournament. And Spain, it was clear to anyone watching on TV around the world that they just couldn't exert the sort of control on the game that they have been able to do without, without even thinking about it for the last number of tournaments. Being at the match specifically, can you see any reasons why that was the case? I, I think it's a number of things all, all coming together. And, and I guess none of them in themselves are, are things that, that we didn't know about or we didn't suspect. Um, that we've sort of seen the physical level of the likes of Xavi Alonso and Xavi drop off over the last year or two. I mean, Xavi particularly... I mean, and that was why he didn't start last night. And I, th- I think he's, you know, Xavi really is, is key to that style. Um, you know, people say, is, is Tiki Taka dead? Well, one of the reasons that we won't see it in the same form again is that Xavi made it work and Xavi is a unique player. 
so it, it's and I don't think it is dead. I think it's it's it will not it will not um, it will not rain in quite the same way. I think people aren't intimidated by it anymore. People, uh, I think you know, when Manchester United lost to, to Barcelona in, in the Champions League final in, in 2009, 2011, I think there was a sense there of kind of. With Manchester United, we have to have the ball. How do we cope with 30% possession? Whereas we've seen over the last couple of years that the, the sides, even big sides, are, are prepared to say, OK, we'll, we will self. We'll, we'll let you have the ball. We'll hit you on the break. Worked for Real Madrid against Bayern Munich this year. Worked for Bayern Munich against Barcelona last year. So I, I think the intimidation factor has gone from it. But I think fundamentally, this this wasn't the collapse of a philosophy. It was the collapse of a, of a generation of players who probably, in retrospect, should have been freshened up earlier. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really interesting what you say there about Xavi, Jonathan. I mean, you're you're giving him a lot of credit, really, for um, you know the most dominant um, international team that any of us can remember. Um, that he was the man who who made it all work. What what is it about him? If I mean, if we're talking about the end of Xavi's career at the top level of, of football, um, maybe we can look back at it and ask what it was that that made him unique. I think it's it, you know it's the combination of attributes. It's the um, yeah extraordinary first touch. I mean he you know he never missed yeah, virtually never miscontrolled the ball. So you, you played the ball to him under pressure, and he he wouldn't lose it. He'd bounce it off, and that immediately takes a player out of the game who, who's marking him. Uh, he he did. I mean certainly sort of two or three years ago, maybe it started to fade out of his game. He did just have sort of a, a little five yard burst that so you had to get tight to him because you, you couldn't let him turn and have have a little run at you. Uh, but I think it, actually the the key thing is is um, his his capacity to visualise the game to sort of understand where the players are and to instinctively play, play those little five ten yard passes that in themselves don't look very much but in combination done quickly just create space where where others wouldn't see it or wouldn't be able to create it and that then allows the likes of Busquets and Iniesta who are very very good players in their own right and Iniesta in some ways I, I guess you might say is a, is a greater player than Xavi. But probably less fundamental to that, that philosophy, and, and they're they're allowed to play, they're allowed to flourish by Xavi and in his vision and, and and that capacity just to move the ball on slightly quicker than, than anybody else can. John, I remember talking to you uh, four years ago in England for the World Cup, um, and one of the things that we discussed was the number of coaches in England, um, qualified coaches compared to the number in in Germany, in Spain, in France, um, and that I suppose was an example of one of the in which when a team wins or loses, international wins or loses, it reflects either um, credit or discredit upon the, the sort of national system. And the Spain uh, national system, I, I guess, has been held up as a model for the world. Uh, you know, this, this enlightened way of teaching players, which gives them a familiarity with ball. But, but are, are, are we saying here that actually it has more to do with the with becoming of a genius like, like Xavi, a kind of a one-off player? Because... If Xavi's unique, then that means that this system, which is, you know, hailed and, and probably rightly so around the world, you know, it's not able to just turn out a Xavi. Well, it's not able to just turn out a Xavi. But I, I don't think two defeats mean that the Spanish system is wrong. I mean, you look at the strength of that squad, you look at the players they haven't taken, you look at their success at youth level, they're still doing everything very much right. Um, but... I, I think all you can do with youth coaching, uh, you know, there's no, there's no magic formula. What you do is you, you put in place a system that turns mediocre players into good players and turns good players into very good players. And you try and create an environment where you're maximizing the, the potential of what you have. And you're creating an environment where if a genius like Xavi does come along, you're able to, to take advantage of that. Now, 
yeah, I, I, I think at times, England particularly, so we sort of get hung up on this, that the, 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 the period of time without success in international football is, is so long now. I mean, you know, 58 years. That, uh, is that right? 58 years? 48 years. 48 years. 48 years. <laughs> it, it feels like 58. 48 years. Um, that, 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 you know, we sort of assume that, that this must be something we're doing fundamentally wrong. Well, actually, if you look at it, um, in the last eight World Cups, England have reached five quarterfinals. Only Brazil and Germany can beat that. So, you know, in a sense, England's doing quite a lot right, and they just haven't perhaps had the, the Javi figure to, to take advantage. Now, at the same time, you, you look at the players at the in the lower reaches of the Spain squad, the players, I mean, people like Coque, who came on at half-time, who would surely be a starter for any other country. People like Cazola, who, who's hardly had a look in, and yet is clearly a player of, of, of extreme class and ability, um, who, who would be first choices for, for pretty much any other nation, maybe not Germany, maybe not Brazil. Well, actually, even Brazil probably they'd be first choices for. So, you know, it, it, it's, it's getting that balance right between saying, well, our system's terrible, we've got to rip it all up, we've got to start again, uh, which I don't think is the case in England. But then, you know, looking at Spain, saying, well, they clearly, they, they do do it better. And two defeats don't change that. They have just won three tournaments. And you look at the quality of players in, in their squad, you look at what those players are doing at club level, and, and they are still producing huge numbers of, of, of very fine players. Jonathan, great stuff. Hope you're enjoying the tournaments over there. Thank you. Cheers, thank you. Hair dryers is a metaphor for the current of hot air generated by a furious blast of temper. The hair dryer with which uh, Alex Ferguson was famously associated. He threw a hair dryer, I think, at David Beckham. Oh, he threw a hair dryer at David Beckham. Uh, in the, is that right? No, 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 no. Ken, before we let you go and wrap this whole thing up for today, we haven't even mentioned Holland. Um, I've been doing the maths in this. Robin Van Persie and Arjen Robin have three goals each after just one week of play, right? This is a four-week yeah. tournament. So if both yeah. of them continue on a week-by-week progression, as they have done, they'll end up on four, four by four, three by four, 12 goals each. Both players just one shy of Jus Fatain's all-time record of 13 for a single World Cup. Yeah, uh, I mean, if I was you, Owen, I'd, I'd probably send a CV to John Henry. Um, <laughs> that, or Nate, Nate Silver, of, maybe. Uh, number crunching. Um, yeah, I mean, they are. There's no doubt that they are set to to smash the the World Cup with golden boot record. I, I only wonder will will one of them run out of time before he manages to match the others' uh, tally of goals. But yeah, twelve goals each for for Robin and Van Persie. You'd Would have, you'd have to think Dutch, that gives the Dutch a real <laughs> gives them a chance. Yeah, yeah, it gives them a chance. The, you know, the question is. Can they stop the goals going in the other end? Can they stop 24 <laughs> goals going in the other end? You score 23, yeah. we'll score 24. All right, That's Ken, listen, we'll uh, leave you to it there. It's been great. Show number one is already out. It's a uh, World Cup theme to that one as well. We've got a P-Bezo, a World Cup P-Bezo, and US Murph on the United States. Incredible victory against Ghana and their chances against Portugal. We've had six shows out this week. We'll have six more for you next week, including World Cup programmes Monday to Thursday. Just to mention, in the meantime... Do have a look out for the Keith Duggan is interviewing Jim McGuinness uh, over the next couple of days in the Irish Times. And that's bound to be, well, you're talking about a seriously brilliant interviewer and a seriously brilliant interviewee. So I'd be surprised if that's not very entertaining. Donegal are in action again against Antrim this weekend. Have a look out for that. In the meantime, I'm going to thank you, Ken. Thank you, Owen. I'm going to thank you, Kieran. Thank you, Owen. Thank you, Ken. Thank you, Kieran. And I'm going to thank you very much for listening. Hope you enjoy the show. We'll chat to you soon. What is that? That's the second time it's gone off.
never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com.